Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. These days, everybody wants to be green. I'm not talking about selfies with your favorite houseplant or fair weather football fans. I'm talking frank and honest coffee, sustainably made, supporting local jobs and communities. We are guaranteed Irish and a genuinely greener choice. Frank and honest. You can't fake great tasting coffee. Available in Centra and Super Value stores nationwide. Welcome, everybody, to the Blood and Mud podcast, the special, special investigations unit, Josh. Like an American police procedural, but with more sexy characters, obviously. Much more sexy characters and more sort of inherent morality as well, you know. Yes, but better looking characters as well, even if I do say so myself. <laughs> um, we're here to, we're going to do a bit of a deep dive on the concussion thing because we had two options. We could, we're on a break and we wanted to do a patron special, uh, and but we're going to do this to the public as well. But anyway, it'd be for, with patrons first. And we had a choice between kind of trying to invent something or do something quite topical. So we did this instead. We had the option of me and you coming on, Josh, and ranting with very little knowledge. Yeah, as I've done for the last five or six years about rugby and head injuries. So I think probably, yeah, and probably just, fill up with really that, just a, An ever-increasing gradual fume for an hour <laughs> until by the end we were just screaming and about and nobody gets it. So we figured that probably wasn't the way to go. Some of you be thinking, probably you not. mean, it's not going to be that. Oh, no. That's what we pay our patron for, but you never know. So what we thought we'd do instead, because as we've said, when we have the uh, Rugby History podcast, we get the prof on. Uh, we, we've said, you know, this country's had enough of experts, but this podcast has not. So we thought we'd get somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. So we'd like to welcome from Morgan Sports Law, Ben Cisneros. Hello, Ben. Hi, guys. Thanks very much for having me on. Oh, no, seriously, we're going to thank you because, <laughs> you know, to say the heavy lifting is going to be done by one part of the podcast tonight is probably is probably too much to say. Yeah. I'll get ready for my for my monologue then. <laughs> well, yeah, it'd make a difference between <laughs> one of us. Too, it probably, makes it, a so. change, yeah. So thanks for getting to do this and, and hopefully you can bring some enlightenment to all of this because, I mean, where are we up to, I suppose, Josh? We can start with saying where we think we're up to, and Ben can Fuck go, whoa, me. whoa, whoa, lads, hang on. No, that's not where we're up to. But, uh, but let's, let's make a start. Where are we up to? Lots of people in a, in a case, effectively. Yeah, I mean, it's the thing that we have been banging on about on this podcast for 
you know, basically since it started, it was, you know, inevitably somebody was going to want some semblance of legal satisfaction for things that they believed that they were not told about in their playing career regarding long-term brain injuries, etc. And it's amazing how quickly it's happened, really, isn't it? Like, a couple of weeks ago, nobody seemed to be really that bothered. And now all of a sudden, everybody is very, very, very bothered. And it was quite a lot. There was obviously a, co- a coordinated PR plan oh, hugely. with this, yeah, yeah. wasn't there? That it all suddenly came out. Did, ben, do we know why now in, 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 in any particular reason? Is there some you know, change in law or the time is ripe or people are just obviously really ill and need the money? I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think it's probably the latter. I think that you know, these players have clearly received their diagnoses relatively recently. Um, and so they probably just just thought that they'd better start taking action sooner rather than later. Um, legally speaking, there's there's things called limitation periods, which basically put a time limit um, on the amount of time you have to bring a claim. Once you once you realise that you you know once you realise that you've been you you suffered harm, you have three years in in England and Wales to bring your claim. So obviously that that will have had a bearing. But nice. other than that, I, I think it's probably just the fact that players have have realised that they they have have these conditions uh, and therefore, you know, potentially ha- have a legal claim. And is is the word class action the right term to use or is that an American thing? I never quite understand. Yeah, that, it, that, really. It's an Americanism, really. Um, in, in this country, it would be more accurate to describe it as group litigation. Mm-hmm. I mean, at this stage, it's you know, it's not in the courts yet. We're, we're sort of quite early early stages, but potentially, you know, if it reaches the court, then it's going to be a group litigation whereby multiple claims are essentially brought together, they're managed together um, in one court. Class actions are a bit different in the US um, and that's why I think you know we, we all need to be careful about the comparisons that are drawn between this case and the NFL case because mm. over there class actions essentially work on, in an opt-out system so you know cl- claims are brought and then if, if, if you fall into the category of people that might be affected you essentially are part of it unless you unless you opt out whereas in this in this country um it's sort of the opposite certainly that's Mm. the main way of doing things it's the opposite where you you have to you know actively bring a claim to be in with the chance of getting compensation could this slightly off tangent then but like given that vibe of you know you kind of have to be out you have to be in rather than you have to be out yeah is the main sort of thrust of what these you know, the the various lawyers involved are likely to be doing at the moment is casting the net extremely wide in the hope of getting in as many players as possible because presumably kind of they they will want A, as many players involved as possible, but also I guess kind of you want to get everybody into the first one, otherwise you're in a sort of weird kind of PPE claims situation. Potentially, where... <laughs> yeah, yeah, potentially, that, that's a good point. Um, I mean, there's certain rules on on what solicitors can and cannot do to, you know, to drum up clients, essentially. Mm. Um, so, you know, you're not you're not supposed to reach out to, to specific individuals and be like, oh, you know, I think you have a claim, let me represent you, you know, that, that sort of oh, thing. You it's, can't it's get not... a bus like when Better Call Saul... Does well, that, that, you know, the old people from it, where he gets on the bus and accidentally makes it break down and says, "Oh, why you're all here?" <laughs> you, you can you can certainly advertise, but there's a limit. My, my point my point was that there's there's limits to what you course, can do. Yeah, yeah, but but you're yeah. right, you're right. They'll, they'll want to you know 
for various different reasons. They'll, they'll want to have as many players on board as possible. Although um, it's worth saying that, you know, under the under the sort of group litigation scheme that we have have in this country, it's, it's possible that, you know, certain test cases, as I think they've been referred to in the press, could right. potentially be, be heard before others. So would that be individuals then? Within within the group litigation, would step out and become an individual test case. Yeah, I mean they'd still be part of the group, but, but right. certain issues could be determined, you know, based based on one one particular case. It really depends on, I suppose, how similar factually each of the cases are. Um, you know, if if each of their claims are virtually identical, then you know the court might be able to determine them based on on one or two test cases. Whereas if if they're all slightly different, then various different elements might need to be to be heard separately. Yeah, I am. Um, I am not a lawyer, but I have had some experience of the law in my real job, and I've been in court mm. a few times on cases, mostly under the uh, adult social care stuff. Uh, for example, the Mental Capacity Act 2005 and stuff like that. And in those mm. cases, every time I, I don't expect to know about this, Ben, you may very well do. You, but obviously, the, the judges, and when you read judgments and stuff, often talk about the, the concrete elements and situations of a case which can't really be you know they set some precedent but it's very hard to to read across completely your point about how similar cases are i mean there's a concrete element in these all of these cases they all played rugby and none of them are now very well but is it more i imagine just to be clear then how much would they be looking for specificity between in that i mean it really depends on on the way the cases are argued and, and the way they're defended but if i if i give you an example let, let's say that one of the players has has gone through their career with some concussions sort of sporadically throughout they've retired at the end um you know so let's say they play for 10 years um, and then subsequently they've developed these symptoms so that's sort of your standard case where there's nothing out of the ordinary so to speak you could have another case where you've had um a player who has, as well as going through his rugby career, has um, maybe particular family history of of dementia, mm. maybe was in a severe car accident where they also suffered a head injury. Um, all these sorts of things which could slightly, um, you know, affect who is liable and, and to what extent. So that's just an example of, of ways that cases could differ and why they might might not all neatly fall under the, the same umbrella. So talking about things fine differently, I'm, I'm just trying to explore really how the mechanics of this move forward because we can all get have an opinion about the issues, can't we? But I'm interested in the kind mm. of mechanics of it really because what do you, I'm interested in legislation and jurisdictions, I suppose, because there's a lot of names in this and Carl, I think Josh, you said Carl Heyman's come out with being part of a claim. Is that in France? I, there's I a whole lot of things. I can't remember. It's that. almost like I was saying at the start, it's like, all it's taken is for this first thing to appear and then we've got talk of it happening in France, we've got talk of it happening in New Zealand, you know. So, but this group litigation, Ben, is specifically in the England and Wales jurisdiction, is it or that's, not? That's, that's what it seems to be. I mean, ultimately, I'm only going off the, the media reports yeah. as, as much as you guys are, but what I understand to be the case is that these this group of players are suing the RFU, the WRU and World Rugby in the English courts, um, and that would presumably be under the law of England and Wales. So, so the jurisdiction would, would be England. Mm. Like, like you say, that there are, you know, there is the possibility that there might be claims in other jurisdictions. Jurisdiction certainly in, in Europe is tends to be determined on, on either where the 
sort of wrongful action occurred, the wrongful mm -hmm. act occurred, or, or where the damage occurred. So in, in this case, let's say you, you played in England and you now live in England. The fact that you're suffering in England means both the the tort, as we call it, the wrongful act occurred in England and your damage occurs in England. If you'd played your whole career in France, then mm. the action could have occurred in France. The wrongful act could have occurred in, in, in France. But if you now live in the UK, for example, maybe your damage has accrued over here. So you could potentially have jurisdiction here. Equally, there could yeah. be jurisdiction in the French courts and it could get very messy. Um, so there's certainly potential for claims to be brought in other jurisdictions. And you can't join jurisdictions. Is that right? Um, if if um, it was <laughs> very complicated, but right. you know, in in theory, if if you, if you could either bring a court in a claim in in the French courts or the English courts, you know, you, and there was already this action going on in the English courts, you could probably join the English action. action. Right. But 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 if <laughs> that there might then be an argument about whether you should have brought it in France, so it could get very complicated. So I suppose the, I suppose the question I'm trying to say is, we could get to a situation where there's multiple group litigations running in multiple jurisdictions. Yeah, potentially. Well, we potentially. Don't know, but potentially. That that's that that's potentially. Yeah, and that's more likely than it all being joined in one case in the English court for somebody it, who plays it, in New Zealand. It's possible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, Is we'll that also that the point, reason? Yeah. I'm guessing you mentioned that it was kind of England and Wales law. I'm guessing that's why we've heard, had some reports that Scottish players are ready to join, but presumably that would come under Scottish law if they played the bulk of their career in Scotland, which yeah, I know if, is if, slightly different to England. If they're now there. suffering their, their sort of harm, their damage in Scotland, then, then yeah, you right. would imagine that it would probably be dealt with under, under Scots law in, in mm. the Scottish courts. But again, th these issues can be quite complicated and then there might be ways in which they try and join, but, but mm. um, that would certainly be the starting position, yeah. So that kind of deals with jurisdiction. So, as, and, I mean, I know you—you know—you're not a lawyer on this case, I mean, Ben. But we're trying to work out. So, what legislation or areas of law are the challenges actually brought under? Is it? Yeah. So, so yeah. the area of law is what we call the law of negligence. So, m most you know, the law of negligence is developed through the common law. It's not sort of a piece of legislation as such, although there are various bits of legislation here and there which might be relevant, but. Predominantly, we're dealing with sort of traditional English common law, which is the, the law that's developed through the courts. Um, and so that's that's where the claim is being brought under the law of negligence. Okay, and and is, is it is it traditionally easy to win cases under this kind of legislation? I mean, well, so, so it's it's not legislation. Just Sorry, just to be clear, okay. it's it's, yeah. it's just it's just sort of court made judge made law and i know that's um, yeah, a, for, for, for a lot of people i suppose who, you know if you haven't studied law it's probably quite a, a strange idea that the law has just been made by the judges i guess but but that is ultimately how, how the english legal system has right. been built um so it's i mean it's it's neither easy nor hard it all depends on, on the facts of your case you right. know if, if if you have a car accident and someone drives into the side of you um it's probably gonna be quite easy to win if they weren't looking where they were going but in a case like this, it might not be so straightforward. But but essentially, what what you have to do in in a claim in negligence is you have to show that the defendant, so the person you're suing, owed you a duty of care, so a duty to take reasonable care, essentially. Then you have to prove that they breached that duty. In other words, they were negligent. Then you have to show that their negligence caused you to suffer some loss. So, in in this case to sort of simplify it, you'd be saying, well, World Rugby owed me a duty of care as a player. Their failure to deal with concussion and head, head injuries adequately caused me to suffer um, 
you know, dementia and CTE essentially. So, yeah, I use a, I use the term legislation erroneously there when you told me not to. But, I did, <laughs> but just to be clear, to my understanding, for example, <laughs> if you, I'm just going about stuff I understand. So under the Mental Health Act, yeah, which is a, an act of legislation, act of primary legislation, mm-hmm. you can be detained under Section Three mm-hmm. in a mental health hospital, and if you don't follow the procedure that's laid out in law under Section Three, you're in breach of that section. And there's potentially damages to be, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that's in a way a, a procedural sort of issue. I'm using like legal terms. I might not be quite right with them, but effectively, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. You I can say you actually, there's these these sections of this law. You've not followed them, and actually, that that's a problem. But this one, there's no there's no um, um, health and safety at work act that people are pointing to here. So you've breached articles mm. seven, five, and two of that. I mean, there is obviously health and safety legislation in this country and that would apply to employers so you know there could be an argument that that was relevant to claims against clubs but but equally you know whether that would apply here i'm, I'm not quite sure i think mm. the main claim is just simply in the tort of negligence where, where you still have these sort of distinct hurdles to get over these distinct steps to go through they're not they're not laid out in legislation but you know Lawyers, lawyers know what they are, um, and there's cer- certain things you have to prove in order to establish your claim, and that's very well established in 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 in, in the you know in, in English law. So, like I said, is you got to right. prove there was a duty that they breached the duty and that they caused you loss essentially. So or caused you harm, I should say. Right. Yeah. So, is the kind what's the kind of thinking abroad among legal? people who think in this field around how strong a case it is is there any kind have you got any kind of feeling of, of that yeah i mean i think you know it would be wrong to say that it's it's an easy case it's an easy win um you know i think i think that it looks to me like like there's a case there and that's you know that's not to say there won't be hurdles you know there, mm. there most definitely there will be um but certainly that there is you know it's not it's not a completely uh, inarguable case. It, it seems like it, it could go somewhere. Because I'm interested. I've made the point. Sorry, Josh. Go on. I was going to say, like, obviously, like, there's been various kind of things that are obviously, you know, kind of being seeded in the press about kind of stuff that people knew a very long time ago. Whether it's you know the 80s, the 70s, or 10 years ago about you know claiming that this kind of knowledge was out there but like mm. even somebody a, a layman like me was aware of rumblings of cte about a decade ago mm. and why do you like from a legal point of view why would world rugby have waited as long as they did to make the changes that we've seen in the last three or four years given what was going on it's particularly with the US. I mean, ultimately, the this, ultimately, this will be one of the key questions in the case. You know, when I sort of said about the various stages, the various elements that have to be proved, this is to do with the, the question of whether they breached their duty of care, whether they were negligent. And key to that question will be, well, what did they know or what should they have known? Mm. Um, and therefore, what should they have done to protect players? Um, so this question of knowledge or, or you know, what they should have known if they if they'd uh, done the taken reasonable steps to to, you know, to 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 research it and to look into it that that is going to be that's going to be really important and 
it's something that I've been doing a bit of looking into for an article I'm working on. Um, and, you know, the idea that repetitive head injuries can cause long-term brain damage, essentially, has been around since the 1920s. Um, wow. There was an article in, in 1928 um, which talked about punch-drunk syndrome. Um, it sort mm. of described um, in boxers the symptoms that are now associated with, um, essentially, dementia and CTE. Mm. Um, so although you know they hadn't studied people's brains as such yet, there were sort of observations um, that, that repeated blows to the head were not a good thing. Um, and then obviously the science has then gone from there. Um, there's a, you know, there's, there's in, in the medical literature, there's references to dementia pugilistica, uh, which essentially mm. means dementia of the, of the boxer. And then in, in 1949, I think it was, um, the term CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a bit of a mouthful, that one. Horrible. Um, it's a horrible one. That was, that was first, <laughs> first used in, in 1949. And then there was a case, you know, formally identified in, in 1954. So there has been understanding of this um, condition for, for a long a long time. Obviously, the, the extent of that understanding has developed quite considerably. And particularly in the last, I suppose, the last two decades, it's really come on. Um, but the suggestions have been, have been there for a while. And I suppose part of the question will be, well, should more have been done to, to look into that? Um, in particular, there, there was an article in one of the, you know, the leading medical journals in 1975 about the cumulative effects of concussion. And I think this was something that led to changes in boxing about stand down periods, etc. And, and that was perhaps the basis for rugby's first stand down periods. But this just goes to show that, you know, there was this this um, knowledge that the cumulative, that, you know, that concussions could build up. Um, and then interestingly, in, there's an article from um, 2001, which actually was entitled Concussion in Rugby, the Hidden Epidemic. And they essentially warned that there was probably mass underreporting of concussion, largely um, because of the, the long stand down period. I think it was a three week period that, you know, you had to be out of the game if you had a concussion. And and they're just for a start, because of the early days of professionalism, there wasn't the same degree of surveillance of players that there are is now. But also I think there was a suggestion that players wouldn't want to tell people they had, had a concussion mm. because it would mean they'd be out of the game for three weeks, which is obviously could mean they'd miss quite a number of matches. So that was in 2001, there was a suggestion that perhaps things weren't quite right. Of course, the main shift that we've seen to, about head injuries in, in rugby probably started around 2011, 2012. I think that was when the, um, that was when the sort of first pitch side assessments were introduced. So that's 10, 10 years after that previous article. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that that's, that's definitive by any means, mm. but, but it's just, I'm just sort of trying to, to give a flavour of the sort of points that we made by the players is that there was a certain degree of knowledge. Um, and, and then actually in, in 2011, so this, that's now almost a decade ago from, from now, there was an article which suggested that, you know, one of the most straightforward ways of reducing the risks of, of concussion and the long-term risks associated with it was to reduce contact in training. So that, that suggestion has been around for quite a while. The NFL have, you know, that they, they introduced limits on training around that time, I believe. Mm. But that's something we haven't really, we certainly haven't seen it formally in rugby. So 
there's there's plenty of questions I think that will be asked of governing bodies in terms of their knowledge uh, and also in in terms of the research they should have conducted and the actions they should have taken in response to the data that was out there. Because I think that's really interesting, is it? Because the number of people when you you know when you're discussing this on Twitter, which is obviously not you know a group litigation scenario, but um, yeah. really, do you say it feels like it sometimes? Fuck, it feels like the, the, um, the a lot of people say. You can't apply the knowledge that we've got now retrospectively. You can't do things yeah. on hindsight. And Jim yeah. Hamilton basically just had that one quote, we signed up, you know. Um, yeah. And I suppose that there's a couple of questions in that. I think you've already addressed some of it, which is there's a, there was a hell of a lot of stuff out there. And the question, I think, like you said, will be put, won't it? Yeah, but as soon as you knew that, why didn't you appoint a commission to deal with it? Or why didn't you appoint a... Why didn't, you, why didn't the RFU have a senior medical officer who... And that was part of their job description. And I imagine all those kind of yeah. questions will be asked. Uh, how much of it is also to do with kind of, I guess, the the fact that the game was amateur until, you know, 1996-ish, you know? Does that yeah. affect it, Ben, do you think? Yeah, it, 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 it would, I think. So, so, there's, so there's various things there. So with, with taking the, the professional amateur point, that, that would go towards the question of what, what they, the governing bodies could reasonably have been expected to do. So, you know, if, if these governing bodies were you know they had fewer resources because the game wasn't professional and and certainly if if the clubs get brought into it that will be particularly relevant i mean when you they, see they those rfu not... balls from the 1980s they look fucking <laughs> to be fair i you know, definitely have no yeah, yeah. to spend on this but go on. certainly so my point is that if the game wasn't quite so professional then they might not be held to such high standards of course you know yeah. the standards of today would would be very different because, because you know, for a start, the science has evolved, but also because the, the, the game has greater resources, although I appreciate that this isn't the best time to be talking about the game's yeah, great resources. But still, comparatively, compared comparatively, to a lot of sports, yeah. you know, rugby yeah. is an extremely rich, extremely well-funded sport. Yeah. You know, so, it, so, it might be fucking broke, but it still yeah. has a lot more resources than fucking squash or whatever yeah, for sure you know? for sure i was gonna say yeah. squash as well why did why did my brain go to squash, squash. <laughs> Weird. Go on. one of the other things i was just going to say was that the, you know the rfu have done injury surveillance since the early 2000s so you know it's not like they've neglected these issues entirely i think that's important to say for for, for balance there's a report come but, out today hasn't there about injuries? is that yeah just literally today their concussion uh, reports come out okay well, long story be... short two it, they reckon about two concussions per club per game Really, in the last twelve months is what they're looking at, but that's quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah. The the other thing is that um, you know, the data on concussions obviously it's much more it's much more developed in the last twenty years, but there was data to, to suggest that concussion was was you know quite significant in rugby from from the eighties. There was an article I think someone was sharing it on Twitter the other day. Um, from rugby school where they talk about concussion in schoolboys and of course that's not the same as concussion in, in adults etc but I think it you know serves to demonstrate that you know people were aware back then that concussion was a frequent injury in rugby I mean ultimately Bill Bowman the chairman of, of world rugby retired because of the effects of concussion because he'd had too many concussions so I think it would be wrong to say you know we just didn't know that, that concussion was a thing in the 1980s. Um, it clearly was, and it was known to be an issue. I think the more difficult question is whether the long-term neurodegenerative effects of concussion were known. And, and even now, in 2020, the science is not universally accepted yeah. that repeated head injuries cause CTE. Um, 
there's well, there's a growing body of opinion that suggests it is and i think it's it's now accepted that there's an association between the two but certainly there are still um groups of scientists that would say there's not a cause and effect relationship i think the issue but and again cte grabs the headlines because you know a film with will smith in was made about it i imagine and it's yeah. because america and all that but i was reading dr willie stewart's feed on twitter who's a who, who, yeah. who, who looks at this and he was they've written a paper recently that actually if you leave cte aside there's a much higher prevalence of parkinson's much higher prevalence of those types of, of mm. neuro. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm using terms I don't understand, but you know, neuro conditions. Yeah, in this, in these cohorts of people, i.e., rugby players and yeah. footballers, actually. I um, haven't, I haven't come across that paper, but I mean, that's something that was also identified in boxers and has been identified in boxers for years. Um, is is you know the suggestion that that comes along with the. the the dementia so, side of it. Yeah, it's understandable that the the people bringing the case have brought out, you know, cynically the most headline worthy people, because and the reason why they're most headline worthy because they're the most effective. Those well, being they got the headlines. Yeah, and, yeah, the, and those, yeah, quite, and those yeah. being I, I, that sound like they were being more cynical, but actually saying I'm 42 and I've got early onset dementia because I, because I got my head smashed in playing rugby is what I would lead with as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? But that's what people are talking about now. But actually, if you layer it underneath, it looks like there's far more conditions that, that, that we're looking yeah, at. Yeah, it's almost like they use they are obviously using sort of extreme examples like Steve Thompson, like Alex Popham. Yeah. You know, who well, I, I are obviously think, not normal inverted commas but I th- within I think the riders of rugby. But yeah, that that helps though to to try and establish their case that there is a link, mm. because it's incredibly unusual for for men of their age to to be suffering from these conditions. So mm. that in itself would, although it's not definitive, um, it would imply that there's a link. Would it? Would it not? Um, in the absence of any other things that have happened in their lives, perhaps which which could have brought on on this disease or condition and does there have to be is there a level of evidence to even bring a case like this ben i mean to bring a case i mean you you wouldn't you wouldn't start a a claim in court if you didn't think you had a reasonable chance of winning simply because of the cost that it would involve but so so to to bring the case in the first place there's not a formal threshold but you know you, you wouldn't bring it unless you thought you had a you had a shot um in terms of the proof when it comes to trial, then yes, there's a there's a standard of proof. Um, you know, you have to prove on the balance of probabilities that your condition was was caused or that they breached the duty of care. Th- that's the standard for things. And whenever you have to prove them, it is the balance of probabilities, which essentially means it's more than fifty percent likely. Snap, snap. At AIB. We don't make technology for you to bank. We make it for you to live. Just watch. So you can apply and get a loan through your AIB app or online. This out like it ain't All from the comfort of home. Banking to fit the way you live. AIB, we back doing. Lender criteria, terms and conditions apply. Over 18s only, subject to approval. Security may be required. Allied Irish Banks PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. 
When we talk about quitting smoking... When my first child was born, for them... Obviously money. We talk about why so much. Health for myself. My family. I'm a mom. It becomes part of the habit. The smell of my clothes. I just You've already talked about why you want to quit, so let's start talking about how. If you stop smoking for 28 days, you're five times more likely to quit for good. For tips, tools and real support, visit quit.ie or free phone 1-800-201-203 and make the next stop your last stop. From the HSE. Just sorry, I digress slightly there because I was, was going to come back to the points we were making about the players. So, again, going back to that we signed up thing, and a number of players mm. have made the point that we knew what we get ourselves into, and a few people have made the point about where does where does individual responsibility lie? Because all the information you talked about before, Ben, yeah, was in the public domain. And, and anybody who enters into a rugby field and takes up a contract to play, especially in the professional area, era, takes up a contract to play the game, knows the risks. How does law view things like that, and particularly how coercive a, an employment contract is? I mean, I think it's important to say that just because these things were were out there doesn't necessarily mean they were, firstly, they weren't necessarily in the public domain. They, right. they were in the sort of the medical literature, which you can find mm. if you go searching. Some of it's some of it's, you know, behind paywalls and in, in medical journals. And, you know, the, the, the development of the Internet means that it's, it's much more readily available now mm. than it perhaps would have been in 2000, for example. But so, so I think it would be wrong to say that it was... Do you mean that it Frank was out- Cotton wasn't reading The Lancet regularly or anything <laughs> like that? You know? that's, that's exactly what I mean. Um, <laughs> so, so I think it would be wrong to say, you know, it was in the public domain. They right. should have known. I think, you know... The question of the, where the responsibility on players lies, I don't think it would go that far. I don't think you could expect players to be reading med- medical literature before they decide whether they're going to play the game or not. I think that's that's not reasonable. Uh, whereas the duty on on the on the governing bodies is higher, such that sorry, it's more onerous, such that they could reasonably perhaps be expected to, to look into these things given that they have the overall regulatory authority for these sports you know that brings with it certain responsibilities one of which perhaps is delving into the medical literature I don't think you could say that's the same for players um, and so yeah the, the Jim Hamilton tweet was was quite an interesting one because you know I, I'm surprised that there's players that take that view because to me and I think this is the position that the law takes if you didn't know something um, was a risk, then you can't have consented to it. Mm. You know, consent is is only valid if it's informed. And the fact that, you know, there wasn't a widespread understanding or, or, or at least players weren't told that playing rugby could lead to long-term neurodegenerative conditions tells me that they didn't sign up for that. They, they didn't know what they were signing up to. And I, I'm surprised that players would suggest the opposite and you know that that suggestion would certainly um you know not do very well in court that's just so much of this and so much of the reaction it feels like has come more from a sort of knee jerk sense of kind of desire to protect the sport i i agree they're obviously employed by and love you know and i think everybody you know everybody who loves rugby feels that way as well we don't you know nobody wants rugby to end and no, of some of the stuff that's come out is, is very scary, and you don't see, there's not a lot. And so you can understand, I guess, why why people like Hamilton and Good and the usual suspects are sort of 
you know, it's it's a it's a, a defensive reaction, I guess. Yeah, in, yeah, in, and, in an, and an emotional one at the end of the day. Yeah, and you don't and you don't want to admit to yourself, I guess, that you you've been putting yourself and your your future life livelihood and life and quality of existence at risk doing this thing that you enjoy so much. Mm. I think There's it's, also the fact they say actively, you know, let's not beat around the bush. It was continued to be. I didn't play rugby professionally, um, but it was kind of continued to be encouraged and it was part of the warrior image of the game that you get a bang on the head and you carry on and nobody's mm. going to be overly concerned about stopping you until certain things came in and it started to be taken more seriously. As you mentioned, Ben, in the last decade. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And th- that's exactly the problem though, because what the players will be arguing, the players that are bringing the, the claims is that, you know, that was... That shouldn't have happened. That there should have been a completely different culture around concussion. You know, it shouldn't have taken until until the last decade for this awareness to have come in, and, and for governing bodies, clubs, to have started taking this um, really seriously. That that's all going to be part of the case. Mm. Why did it cost the NFL a billion dollars before rugby started giving a fuck? Is the kind of. But if you look at the NFL, though, I think the billion dollars as 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 a as a chunk of its operating budget is a small amount of money yeah, to make that go away forever. So nobody's getting a billion yeah. dollars, are they? And that's but, the yeah. that's the other thing that it, obviously it never made it to trial in yeah. America. Yeah. Well, that's like, interesting. The, question. the NFL, yeah. the NFL saw enough from what they saw of the science and the papers, and you know the the science that they were ended up sponsoring in the end could you know that for years and years was kind of trying to downplay it in the end it couldn't even do that I was just gonna say there's a few things to pick out of, of that and you made some really good points so the NFL case is is different for a number of reasons firstly I, I said about the class action system at the beginning mm. that's that's quite different secondly damages compensation in the US tends to be quite a bit higher than in in England and Wales so you know the idea that you might get a billion a billion pounds is quite <laughs> fanciful. Um, obviously, well, it would doesn't all... have a billion pounds. <laughs> well, then there is that. Yeah. Nigel uh, Ray does. Nigel Ray does. Yeah, <laughs> Bruce Craig's got it down the back of the sofa. But obviously, it would all depend on the number of players that that end up having claims, etc. But you know, I would not expect it to to get really? that high. That's not to say it couldn't be the hundred in the hundreds of millions of pounds. That's that's quite foreseeable if 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 they're successful yeah um but but the scale is important <laughs> there's an important difference there um then um thirdly there's the the idea that the nfl either knew or, or they had seen signs that there was um danger of cte and concussion but they suppressed them or they denied they denied the links and they tried to cover it up either you know by putting pressure in certain places etc and that was quite a, an important feature of that case mm. i don't think that's what we're talking about here and it would be very surprising if that was the case um so that obviously would have factored into the question of, of damages and, and also the question of the settlement and then like you say josh um the, the case did never go to trial there, there was a settlement under which the nfl essentially agreed to create a fund for former players who were suffering from various neurological conditions that were related to football um and also they you know put some money aside to fund further research but under that settlement the nfl never admitted liability either 
So they, mm. they, they put aside the money, which, as, as Lee says, is a very small percentage of their turnover. Um, and they never admitted liability. So, again, it, you just got to be people have got to be careful when they draw comparisons to the NFL. That, that point, that, that, go on, Josh. Well, that sort of makes me, th- as you say, kind of, they never had to admit liability because they can afford to not admit liability because a billion dollars is nothing to them. Hmm. As you, If we're talking about damages in the hundreds of millions, hell, even in the tens of millions, rugby can't afford that right now. Like, do you think that that makes it more likely that this is going to go to court? In, as opposed to getting something because nobody I really mean, wants rugby certainly doesn't want this to go to court given the damage like the reputational damage that it could potentially think the rfu's do, lawyers guessing. are going to settle this thing and settle it now as soon as possible basically <laughs> but it, it depends which way where you look at it because on one hand josh you're saying that you know they they want to defend the case so they don't have to pay anything so that they, if they can try and argue the case isn't strong enough um they might see that as one option. Equally, you've got to bear in mind that doing that will cost them an arm and a leg. It's very expensive. Yeah. Um, are expensive. But on the other yeah. side, they, they might try and settle it for less than it could be worth in court because if they mm-hmm. lose, the claim that the sorry the damages could be quite high. You know, given that these players are, let's just assume they're all around in their their early forties. That means that they're potentially, you know, they've got a lot of their life ahead of them. Um, they've got time when they might need to go into care. They're going to have medical expenses. Mm. They're going to need to be able to sort of get compensation for their lost earnings because they're not going to be able to work for a, you know large periods of their life. Um, and of course, that's you know going to impact on their ability to support their families, etc. So th- their compensation individually could could easily exceed a million pounds. So if you have a hundred, two hundred players, it doesn't take <laughs> very long to do the maths. Christ. Yeah, I mean, and and that's without, I guess, thinking, you know, as you said, like the NFL set money apart aside to fund further research. Like, you'd find it hard to believe that given what the players have claimed that they want in terms of the sort of te- the, the 15 commandments and all of that sort of stuff that came out last week, you find it hard to believe that they're also not going to want world rugby and the unions to sort of start investing a lot of money in investigating what it seems to be an epidemic, you know, mm. and has, mm. has, has been seemed to be an epidemic for sort of at least 20 years, I guess. Mm. Mm. I mean, it's an interesting question because, I mean, they, the people bringing the action, the, the litigation, um, did actually publish a kind of manifesto, didn't they, at one point, saying this is what we want to see. A lot of it is about reducing contact in training, a better monitoring, a better care, and all that kind of stuff, which I suppose is then very publicly trying to get public opinion on side to say, well, all that seems very reasonable to me. Why the hell do you want to go to court over that? And and, and so on and so forth. I don't know if that's mm. the strategy, but it seems to be. Yeah, no, it, it, it seem, seems to be factoring in. I think, I think, you know, a settlement, I think one of you mentioned it, could be seen as a attractive option for, for both sides of this because do the governing bodies and, and possibly the clubs as well do they want this to be dragged through the courts publicly that would be potentially embarrassing and it would obviously just attract a whole load of negative publicity for the sport and then on the other side do do the players want to take it to court when there there is a risk of them not succeeding you know there's always a risk of that 
um and also if if they're going to put themselves um in in, in on trial then their lives are going to be open to examination as well and i think mm. you know it's been a feature of some of the claims under the nfl settlement that you know ultimately they, they look into what what things players have done outside of rugby and and you know well, it yeah, might well, be caused by the fact you've smashed 14 kilograms of cocaine up your nose in 2007 well, <laughs> well a lot of people have you know a lot of people brought up as soon as the sort of thompson thing came up you know it didn't take long for people to point out that he you know was medically advised to retire because of a neck injury and then un- well, and then carried on that that's and, a, that yeah, that's another issue yeah, that, that, that that might be a problem for claims is if players were advised to retire and ignored it then mm. when we when we spoke about the players consenting to the risks that might become quite significant it might be seen that that exactly. sort of yeah. breaks what we'd say it legally breaks the chain of causation between the negligence and the injury because at that point you know you have intervened and, and you've continued to subject yourself to the risks which at that point you realized were significant that's that's mm. a, poss- a possibility how much and, uh, sorry go on gosh. no no carry on man. i was just going to ask the kind of because i mentioned my granddad was a miner and he got paid out for dust in his lungs you know and so mm. did my other Same. my other granddad got paid out and he was already dead and his wife got all his money um <laughs> which was um anyway so but there's, you know, there's asbestos, isn't the vibration white finger? We could go on and on and on about these industrial injury settlements. Is this something? Was that one? Was that under the same, not legislation, but the same duty of care, breach of duty, so, cause so, of loss as this? And I is, mean, it, is it, 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 it across? The, the same principles are relevant to all these sorts of issues. Specifically, that there is the sort of the government zone industrial injuries disablement benefit scheme. So that's sort of a, a state-organized compensation right. scheme for certain types of industrial disease. So if, mm. if your disease is on the list, essentially, then, then you might be able to get some compensation from the government. Right. Um, the asbestos claims, you know, there's been lots of those as well. That's, yeah, that, that's under these sort of same general principles of people suing and, and trying to get compensation. Does it complicate matters? Would, well, that's interesting. If you've received money through Sport England and via the government, does that does that bring in a different dimension to this? Do you mean if if the governing bodies have? Yeah. So if the sport's been funded by government, does then that become a different thing, or to, or does it play into a slightly different thing? Can you start making arguments then that? And then I think, that's I a think bigger, perhaps it's a, it's a bigger result well of. Yeah, perhaps money, isn't it? It, it, perhaps it would be relevant to the question of what 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 was reasonable for them to have done. Because if you know if, if they're backed by you know essentially the government, then yeah th- th- they're going to have more resources and and that there is the funding available I suppose would be the argument. Whereas if it was an entirely private body that was mm. you know trying to scrape funds together from its members, then yeah th- then like like we said the expectation the legal expectation on them would would probably be less. So deep. The smoking gun thing, right? I mean, obviously, because there's always one in legal films, isn't there? Which are always very yeah. realistic, aren't they? But I watched, um, I watched Dark Waters <laughs> recently, which was a great watch in in how quite oblique it was, even though it was essentially a good news story um, about. Um, I don't know if you've seen that one, you two, which is about um, Dupont in Dupont one, Kentucky, yeah. where there was not so much a smoking gun, but fifty-seven boxes of reports which said this is poisoning everybody, and Dupont <laughs> just ignored it. 
and that was and that that went on for years and they took ages to play out but obviously there were boxes of stuff saying yeah you knew let's stop messing around yeah um you've already made some point you've made you've given some narrative ben around stuff that was out there but would a smoking gun be something like an rfu commissioned report in in 1999 or something is it as simple as that i mean th- theoretically if if there was some document that, that showed that the governing bodies were explicitly warned um about the long-term dangers of concussion and and what they should do to to address them you know if, if they received that communication and then they ignored it or they covered that up i suppose that that would be probably as close to a smoking gun as you would get um like like i said earlier i i doubt that it's there is something like that i yeah. i might be wrong i might be wrong but um What's the legal I, I term? Think is it discovery or disclosure when you do this? Yeah, dis- disclosure. Guys? Discovery in the US, disclosure right. over here. Um, so exactly. Then, so, so, so the people bringing the action, the, the litigation can say, I want all your documents that are Yeah, they, you, have, you have to disclose every, everything, yeah. whether it's, um, unless it's sort of covered by legal privilege, etc. You have to disclose everything that's sort of in favour and against your case. And are these, So they and could these, discover that. If it goes to court, are all these... This, these aren't closed courts, are they like the court of protection or anything? These are completely open. Um, yeah, it would be public. Yeah, it would, the, the proceedings would be public. I, I, I don't think you'd be able to access the uh, the documents. No, but, um, but the, they the, may, the arguments about them would be public. And yeah, so the, the press would be able to attend the hearings, yeah. Okay. Um, so have you got any kind of feeling ben um you talk to lawyers is there any and you're in a sports law company is there any kind of feeling abroad about how this is going to go or i mean obviously you can't predict what a court's going to say but i mean you know ultimately i wouldn't i wouldn't want to say which way i, I, th- I think it would okay. go um i think like i said at, at the outset the, the players have a case there's not that's not to say there, there won't be obstacles um it's 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 by no means a clear-cut case but but you know, only time will tell where it'll go. I think, as we mentioned, a settlement may well be what both sides are gunning for because players might be able to to get more out of that. They might be able to persuade the governing body sort of morally that, that they should do something for these players, whether or not the, huh. the, le- the legal case is, is, you know, watertight. Given that these players have, you know, potentially given their given their brains and given their lives to the sport they might they might be able to persuade the governing bodies that the, the moral duty is a significant one and, and by keeping it out of court maybe they'll be able to come to some sort of arrangement where players in the future should they be suffering um would be able to would be able to um get get some help but um no it's there's a long way to go that's that's the other important point to make is that right. only i think it was last week that there was it was reported that the letter of claim got sent and that's basically the letter you have to send before you even um, you know, file things at court. So it's very early days. It, it may well never end up in court. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's going to, to dra- drag on for a while yet. Yeah, if it does go say. to court and everyone's determined to fight it, is, it, is there a kind of ballpark on when the first hearing would be or anything like that? Or? I mean, it would be, I would imagine it would not be for, for a while yet. It's, it's certainly not the sort of thing that's going to happen in, in, in the next few months. Yeah, it's likely to be a long number of months, if not over a year, before before it would get to that stage. Last question on settlement from me, because if you look at the NFL one, as you just talked about, there was a no liability thing there, but they've obviously agreed to do certain things and pay out some money and set up certain things. 
Does that mean there could be, and if that's the way it goes, you imagine any settlement involves no admission of liability mm. as a general requirement, you would think. Does that mean that you, you could litigate it again in the future? It would depend on the, the terms of the settlement. Oh, sorry, um, a, se- a separate group of players, sorry. Yeah, it, it would again. depend on the terms of the settlement and right. the way it was done. Um, because of because of the fact we don't have the same class action system where it's opt out, like I said before, mm. it may well be that it, you know if there's a, a a settlement in the true sense of the word that might only cover the players who actually bring claims. But I, I think perhaps what what the players would be looking for would be something that's broader. So it would settle their claims, but perhaps also set aside funds to deal with future claims. Um, that you know, it would all depend on on what what's agreed, what the terms of the settlement are, because I think there will be a recognition that the, the players that end up in court this time will not be the only players who ever suffer CTE as a result of playing mm. rugby, because for a start, the, these players are all players that retired roughly ten years ago. So if if you take um, you know, if if you say that it takes roughly ten years for these symptoms to develop, such that you would realise you were suffering, then you know, there could be a whole load of, of other players that come out of the woodwork in the next 10 years. So, and after that, of course. So, um, like I say, it will all depend on the terms. It's, it's a classic lawyer's answer. It depends. Yeah, no, of course. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it's, possi- that- it's possible that it, it could deal with future claims. Um, but right. but it, it, equally, they might just try and settle the ones that they're being faced with now and deal with any others in the future. And that being the case... Then, as you say, if because it doesn't have this class action element and doesn't have this sort of going forward element necessarily, like does that mean that whatever happens with this, you know, even if they man, you know, if if they they win the rugby wins this case, or if they settle in a way that they don't admit liability, is there any way that rugby could sort of avoid? taking pretty strenuous measures to try and mitigate this in future generations, knowing now now that they ha- will have had it all laid out for them in, you know, in a legal suit that alleges that, you know, X, Y, and Z happened. And as a result, you know, they, these players who played rugby suffered this neurological damage, kind of how can rugby, you know, rugby will presumably have to mitigate I don't know how they get the insured again somehow. without doing something significant. This is what, this is what I'm, I'm sort of getting at. It's like, how does rugby yeah. avoid, even if they get through, you know, if they can not fucking end the sport through bankrupting itself through this one, how do yeah. they then, you know, carry well, on? I, I think the first thing to say is that because these claims, certainly in the main, seem to re- relate to the sort of the first 10, 15 years of professionalism, you know, you, you you do have to take account of the fact that changes have been implemented since. Yeah. So it's not like you'd be starting from scratch. Um, yeah, you so can argue about it, the pace of them and, and how... Yeah, what, it, you know, yeah, exactly. But they, they have acted in the last 10 years to... to you know, they, they've sort of been at the forefront of changes in, you know, worldwide in terms of the way they've adapted the rules and enforcement to... to to, to, to limit the, reg- yeah, and the risk. And it's notable how frightening it is watching rugby league and football now. Yeah. When yeah. you see how they, re- they react to head yeah. in there. Well, you can pick apart rugby's issue about them not going far enough, but they're a fucking hell of a long way away from what those sports are doing. Yeah, it, exactly. So, no, no, not at all. So so as you say, Josh, you know, going, going forward, if they don't make further changes, would that <laughs> itself leave them open to future liability? 
perhaps again it would all depend on on, on what the science says and and what what would be reasonable for them to do um and also i think another point that we haven't mentioned is, is you know how far can governing bodies be expected to go and, and where does the responsibility of the clubs come in because mm. this thing about you know uh limitations on contact training there might reasonably be a question about whether that's something world rugby or, or the rfu should deal with or should it be something that prl you know premiership rugby as a league should be doing should should they be mm. looking into that you know I, I don't know the answer to that question to be honest um it's 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 a complex one and it it's you know i'm sure one that will will come up in the litigation is the scope of the duty of care you know what exactly were should should the various parties have been expected to do so from that angle then you could be it could get to the point where you know world rugby and the unions are going why are you, why are you talking to us about this shit? This is the clubs. Absolutely, it all starts again. But with PRL not be a on party the in this anymore, Your Honour. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you, I don't. I don't think they'll be able to do that. But they could. <laughs> they could feasibly. You know, there are ways of joining other parties to proceedings. So they essentially could point the finger at the clubs and and get them involved in the action, in the legal action. Um, essentially, they'd be saying, you know, we had rules in place, you didn't follow them. Um, of course, the fact that World Rugby has subsequently made changes might suggest that you know there was still a duty on them to to sort of oversee the issue of set concussion and exactly set the yeah. precedent. But nonetheless, there might be an argument that in that first decade of professionalism, you know, World Rugby's rules were not entirely deficient, but you know the the way the clubs policed them was. Um, and yeah, it's it's going to mm. be that's going to be another interesting issue. You know what? I think it doesn't paint a good picture, though, does it? Because your your point, Ben, about changes have been made in the last ten years, and of course they have. But I also reflect on on that big stat that came out about Alan Wynne Jones about how he's played twenty percent of Wales's international games, and I went away mm, and nerded it a bit ever. And, and discovered that Jason Leonard has played twenty percent of England's international twenty two percent by the time he retired, mostly in the profession, mostly in the profession. Well, no, maybe half. Anyway, the point I'm making is, is that they've ramped up the most intense level of competition in yeah. the last 20 years. Absolutely. Whilst reducing breaks, Absolutely. whilst also having some noise in the background, what your point about the players have a case, but, and I'm just, you know, you'd have to agree with me, but, you know, it just doesn't paint a good picture, can it? Because actually it's okay if you're going to say, well, we're doing some stuff to maybe assess it a bit more, but you're also making people making people play more rugby than ever. Make absolutely well, make just look play at, more rugby than ever before at the highest level absolutely look at this year the, the impact of covid19 has meant that we have a 51 week season yes 51 weeks i know we had to pod every one of them it was horrendous that, <laughs> you joke but it, it it's a really important point the yeah. players players are playing more games now than they were you know in, in the amateur era and the 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 impact of these games on players has only got greater because of professionalism it means that everyone's bigger stronger and faster um which means that the the risk of injury has probably gone up and yet you're playing more games and now with with obviously the coronavirus had a massive impact and they had to look at reorganization for the financial side of the sport but but the answer was to make players play more games in less time 
than they ever have. You know, that mm-hmm. against the background of, of what we're talking about, about the, 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 the way that repeated head injuries and, you know, it's not just concussions, it's sub-concussions, are co- you know, the conditions are caused by repeated blows. Um, increasing the number of matches um, can't, can't be a good thing. No. Well, we wait and see. That's, we're coming up to the hour. We wait and see now uh, what happens. I think, as you said, it'll be it'll all go a bit quiet for a month or so. I suppose. I imagine. I imagine at, people. At least, a, I think. Well, sorry, no. I, I meant to say a number of months rather than a month or so. There. Um, I, I imagine. I wouldn't be surprised if the people bringing the case keep having a nice press and media strategy. Though. Agreed. That seems to be what they. What they're, they're no, playing. you're right. It seems, it seems to, to be, be. What, every couple of days, which will probably stretch out, I guess, to a week. If they've got 70 of them in the hopper, why not? Do you reckon you know? they're holding like a mega name for about three months in? Like Martin <laughs> Johnson's coming out in three months Oof. or something. Who knows? That would be it, wouldn't it? Who knows? Yeah, who knows? And on that point, who knows? We've had our best, we did our best to try and understand it. Ben, thank God you were here, is all I, <laughs> is, is all I want to say. <laughs> and the insights have been really, really helpful and interesting. Indeed. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to you, Ben, for joining us. And we'll see you. Have a lovely Christmas and New Year on the backdrop of that nice, heartwarming chat we just had. (laughs) And we'll speak to you all soon. Take care. Bye-bye. These days, everybody wants to be green. I'm not talking about selfies with your favourite houseplant or fair-weather football fans. I'm talking frank and honest coffee. Sustainably made, supporting local jobs and communities. We are guaranteed Irish and a genuinely greener choice. Frank and honest. You can't fake great-tasting coffee. Available in Centra and Super Value stores nationwide. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.